Welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News, and Views, the place for pets. And they're people who love them. Aw, he's so soft. Come here, come here, boy. Here is your host, practicing veterinarian, veterinary news network reporter, and host of the popular YouTube show, The Web DVM, Dr. Roger Welton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News and Views. I am your host, Roger Welton, coming to you from the Florida Space Coast. As always, thank you very much for tuning in this evening. We have a very polarizing topic to cover this evening, the raw food diet controversy. Basically, that is the feeding of raw meat as a dietary staple for our canine and feline companions. Um, some are very strong in favor of this and feel that it's the best thing for their pets. Others find it is not, and in fact, it can be quite dangerous. We're going to get into the pros and cons of this, We're going to be as objective as we can about it, talk about how it was and when it was first introduced and why, um, and basically break it down for you in the most objective fashion. I think you might be surprised uh, when you ultimately hear my take on it as a veterinarian, what I've observed through the years, because I've seen a lot of people that are you know, very, very convinced that this is the right way to go. And um, at the same token, I've seen a few cases where I've seen it be problematic. So um, I'm going to give you my honest take on it when this all said and done. We have two email questions, only two this week, uh, from uh, listeners. And before we get into the raw food topic, I just wanted to get into the first such question sent in by Ryan of Mendham, New Jersey. Ryan's got a pretty short, contrite question here. My dog was diagnosed with a luxating patella in his back leg. My vet advised surgery. Do you agree, or is there another less invasive route I can consider? Um, just for those of you who don't know what luxating patella is, that is a kneecap that luxates, meaning it pops in and out of place, and it's in the back leg, so that would be in the knee area, and dogs have knees just like we do. Only the conformation is a little different, but the anatomy is surprisingly similar and that kneecap serves a very similar purpose in dogs, and that's basically redistributing tendon forces. It's a lot of force that goes across that particular joint. You have the conversion of all the quadriceps muscles coming into one tendon called the patellar tendon, which runs over the knee joint and enables a lot of weight bearing, a lot of force to be applied across that joint. So I always say to people, <coughs> excuse me, I always say to people, you know, the kneecap's not there for decoration. It serves an important purpose, and that is force redistribution. And when it's popping in and out of place, not only is that primarily painful, it also predisposes to degenerative joint disease because you're putting a lot of force across a joint that is not properly stabilized. It's not properly redistributing those very strong forces, and that joint will be prone to inflammation. It will be prone to injuries of the meniscal cartilage, it will be prone to injuries of the cruciate ligament, otherwise known as the ACL. So what we have is a very important anatomical structure there in the patella. And my suggestion, Ryan, have that sucker fixed. It's such a rewarding surgery. I do these surgeries all the time. And, and the patellas especially are very a surgery I really enjoy doing because of the fact that uh, the healing times tend to be, you know, fairly reasonable. You're talking about full heal by, you know, nine, ten weeks. Um, you're talking about a very quick return to use of the leg, usually within 
a week's time. They're, you know, of course they're they're a little bit lame on it, uh, but you know, for all intents and purposes, they're using that leg just fine within a week or two. And thirdly, um, the end result is you are left with a normal leg. The procedure we use for it um, is is very very uh, very very effective and uh, stabilizing that knee. So uh, my suggestion is to indeed have it repaired. Now make sure your vet has done many of these. Um, I would make sure that he's comfortable with the procedure. And you know, any surgery you're going to opt to move forward with, you want to make sure that the surgeon is not only very experienced, very comfortable with the surgery, and is very comfortable with the results that he gets. And um, in the hands of an experienced surgeon, uh, the patellar surgeries can be can be really really life changing for these dogs. So, indeed, my recommendation is to move forward with that surgery. So let's get into our topic this evening: raw food. So let's let's take it from the beginning because um, we have to you know kind of explain how this got introduced. Now there was a a veterinarian in Australia by the name of Dr. Ian Billinghurst, and Dr. Billinghurst uh, wrote a book called Give Your Dog a Bone back in 1993. And in this book, he talked about the fact, the notion that, I'm not going to say fact, but the notion that the domestic dog, really, when they were diverged from the wolf in terms of becoming domesticated, selectively bred, all the things that we've changed about the dog over the last 100,000 years, he contends that while we change their minds, uh, their their appearance and their ability to... Um, basically live among humans and actually thrive among humans. While we created all that, um, physiologically, we didn't change much in terms of what they should eat, in terms of how they assimilate nutrients um, from the wolf. And he, what he's saying is their, their close wolf ancestor, um, it really should remains a, a good model for how we should be feeding our dogs. So he introduced the concept of raw meat feeding. Uh, basically, there's not there's nothing you know fancy about it. It's pretty much as it says. You feed rather than feed your dog dog food or even you know cooked human food in, in a well balanced fashion. He's saying your dog should be eating raw meat just like a wolf does. And when we deny them the opportunity to do that, we are actually not providing their ideal GI uh, balance the nutrients that they need. They're not getting optimal absorption because of the, the process things we tend to give them. And as a result, what he's saying is a lot of health conditions are avoidable. And that's what he was saying back in 1993. So, of course, you know, a good, a good number of people, uh, you know, felt very in, compelled to follow his advice. He is a practicing licensed veterinarian after all. Um, Australia has a, a good reputation with their veterinary schools, and um, it really struck a chord with a lot of folks. Now, still the vast majority of people remained, you know, either uh, kind of, I don't want to say ignorant, but, but not really knowing this book was out there. Um, the mainstream, for the most part, continued to feed their dogs dog food. And, um, you know, for the majority of people, not a lot of things changed, but there was this kind of small percentage of pet owners that felt that this is what they wanted to do. And the, some of the claims were fantastic. Um, suddenly my dog who had some allergies or my dog whose coat, you know, didn't look so great or, you know, name your condition du jour. Uh, my dog was prone to uh, urinary tract infections. Well, suddenly 
you know, that all went away and we never have to go to the vet and raw diet was the best thing I ever did. Um, heard this quite a bit, actually. And <clears throat> what we've been trying to sift through through the years is, you know, how real are these claims? Um, because when we're, we're talking about the magic of these diets, quote unquote, <laughs> Um, what we're really, in the end, d- dealing with is we're, ba- we're basing our conclusions on people's observations, pet owners' observations, that are, number one, um, from my view, going to be tainted a little bit because they want this diet that they're excited about to have good results. You know, um, Secondly, since there's, there's kind of still a, a backlash in the industry and among your average pet owner, to do, you know, feeding this diet, they're going to be a little defensive about it. So they're going to be looking for anything, you know, that they can uh, sort of grasp at to provide evidence for the wonder of these diets. And uh, you know, in the end, these are these are all human things. I'm not really criticizing these people. I'm just saying that you know, observation uh, from a pet owner that's excited about a diet that's not really scientific study. Um, now, anecdotal evidence from credible people that you know tell us things that various things that they've tried with their with their pets is it is it something we dismiss no we don't dismiss it uh but at the same time you know we have to be careful to not view that as uh verifiable scientific evidence that um we can move forward with as a scientific fact in fact currently there is actually no zero evidence um that these diets are you know the big alternative uh, to, you know, feeding good quality pet food in kibble form or can form. Um, you know, that's what we're really dealing with in the end is, you know, there, there's no f- verifiable evidence uh, that, that comes from a veterinary university or a governing body that is interested in studying this particular topic. At the same token, to be fair, though, let's be fair, there's no studies that exist that disprove the claims either. Um, so, you know, we have to also understand that, that um, w- there's nothing saying that raw diet is a unhealthy way to feed your dog. Um, and, and certainly the same applies to cats. So this really kind of remained a little bit tepid out there. And of course, this was pre-internet for the most part. So for this information to disseminate, it didn't happen all that quickly back then. But a few things happened. First of all, the internet came out. Uh, secondly, uh, people became increasingly a little disheartened with their pet food options. Um, and you know, to be fair, there are there's just a lot of garbage out there. Um, realistically, when we look at grocery store brand type stuff, if you really look into what's going into these diets, um, it's nothing short of appalling. Uh, and and I'm not exaggerating when I say. Uh, there's some diets out there that are a little better than feeding your dog ro- roadkill. So let's be very fair about that. Um, a lot of these people were looking for an alternative to a lot of the garbage out there. But at the same token, you know, in the mid, well, actually early, mid to late 90s, there was also this movement of these better quality diets beginning to come out, diets like Science Diet, Yukonuba, Iams, um, and then later on Royal Canin, where... Um, and Purina, to a certain degree, I, I think Purina has some some very good products. They also have some pretty lousy ones too. Um, you kind of get a mixed bag from them, but but you just saw a lot of a lot more research going in to these diets as far as balancing the nutritional uh, benefit much better for both dogs and cats. You also saw a movement towards providing much more wholesome ingredients. So, for example, 
a protein source um, using muscle or organs. That's going to be a very well-utilized protein source, well-absorbed, um, not prone to poor reaction, whereas some of the grocery store brand diets are using things like hoof, skin, hair as protein sources, which technically are protein and go towards the total uh, percentage breakdown on the labels, and they you know, look good, uh, but realistically, those nutrients are poorly absorbed. Um, so words started to disseminate, and it got a little bit more traction, but really, what really I think um, brought it more to the mainstream than anything was that big, massive pet food recall in 2007, where people became disenfranchised, not just with the grocery store brands, but also, you know, these good quality brands that were receiving um, pet food ingredients from this company called Menu Foods, and the ingredients were tainted. And then every now and then you get a, an odd pet food recall. They're, they're really few and far between, but that one in 2007 was bad. Um, a good number of animals did get sick, and actually two in my clinic I could actually trace back two cats got very sick from that recall. And so I could certainly understand people looking for alternatives. But what we have to do is sit back and look at this objectively. So let's let's go to the proponents, first of all. Um, what they're saying is that, first of all, a dog and a wolf physiologically are the same. All right, so that's one thing I want to debunk right now. Dogs and wolves are not the same. They're actually quite different. They even look quite different. They act quite different. Um, but I will disagree with Dr. Billinghurst in that we know the physiology, especially when it comes to GI, of dogs and wolves is very different. One big difference, the wolf has a gastric pH of about 1. Um, that would melt the chrome off your bumper. Okay? Um, they have super strong teeth and jaws that can actually crunch and pulverize bone. And when that bone reaches the stomach, um, you know it's going to break down even further, even melt down into like a pasty type thing that's going to be digestible and absorbable. Um, that super, super, super acidic pH in the stomach also has a very much, uh, much more effective ability than the pH, the gastric pH of the domestic dog, which is more around two and a half to three percent, closer to our gastric pH, uh, to deal with raw food pathogens and raw food parasites. So, you know, we we just see that the wolf is better equipped for living in the wild and eating in the wild, and that's just the reality of the physiology. You might ask yourself why. If they were descended from wolves, well, why shouldn't they be the same? Well, think about this. A hundred thousand years ago uh, was really when dogs sort of split off from the wolves where um, they were living among humans. They were being fed human-type diets. So, you know, of course, there was no commercial dog foods back then. So as the generations of dogs were living among people, they were pretty much eating what the people were eating, which for the most part was cooked stuff, which was ve uh, vegetable matter, um, pretty much eating an omnivorous diet, and that's what they became adapted to. Throw in the last 300 years where we have engaged in highly, highly selective breeding, and which we've created is a weaker species, unfortunately, but it's the truth. A species that's more like us, that is going to be more sensitive to raw food pathogens, that... Um, is going to eat a lower protein diet, more omnivorous, where they're needing various different kinds of nutrients to round out their diet. So omnivorous means that they need a certain amount of vegetable matter, carbohydrate and fibrous uh, form, and also simple sugars. They need a certain amount of fat, and they need a certain amount of protein. Whereas wolves, 
Yes, they do eat vegetable matter. Um, that's a big fallacy that they only eat meat. That's not true. One of the first things you'll see a wolf do after it kills its prey is tear open that stomach and eat the vegetable matter of its herbivorous prey. So they're going to eat a fair amount of vegetable matter. Of course, it's going to be in a lot lower percentage than the domestic dog. And again, we've introduced these changes. So um, this is this is stuff that's been proven time and again just through just through study um, since this whole revelation came out when uh, Dr. Billinghurst came up with this whole concept. So years and years of study, observation, has indicated that the dogs and the wolves are very different species. So let's debunk that part of it. Um, number two, there has been this notion that grains are the seed of all evil in dogs when it comes to poor health. That um, eating grains, cooked grains that is, is responsible for anything that could possibly go wrong with a dog. Um, and that's actually, that's simply not true. Actually, this has been also studied. <laughs> um, dogs actually can assimilate grains as a very, um, not just good, absorbable carbohydrate and fiber source, but, but, but they do it quite well, just as well as we do. Now, is that, is that without exception? No, it's not. Um, there are some dogs that can react to certain elements of grains and, this can manifest in the form of food allergy and cause either issues primarily at the level of the gut or can actually manifest in their skin and cause skin allergies type of signs. And it's the same situation where with people, um, we weren't originally meant to eat grains. I mean, if you look at the early uh, humanity, um, what were we? We were, we were hunter-gatherers. We hunted meat and we ate vegetable matter that we could gather. Um, it wasn't until later on, much, much later on, where in, in recent history we began cultivating the land and growing grains to consume. Um, but while that's sort of a, a, a semi-man-made thing that we did, it doesn't mean that grains are not a viable carbohydrate and fiber source. In fact, grains are the staple for vast majority of our diets, actually, if you look at across the world. And the same applies to dogs and cats where, you know, you can use these things while, no, it's not necessarily what, what evolution drove them to do. It's a nice replacement. It's an inexpensive source of carbohydrates and fiber. And so it has worked uh, quite well, but not, not without exception, of course. And we have to recognize that. On the food allergy list, um, Things like corn gluten, Greek um, wheat gluten, usually fall somewhere between five, number five and number seven on the food allergy list. And certainly, when there's problems, that has to be something that that needs to be looked at. But grains are not the root of all evil. They can be problematic in a small percentage of um, pets that consume them, but they're not the root of all evil. And that's something else we really need to debunk as well. All right, I know this. I did a whole special on the gray, the grain-free food craze. So if you want to get into that a little bit more, I'd have you refer to that particular episode. But let's get back to the raw. Um, so these folks are um, very passionate about eliminating grains, um, feeding raw meat, and some of them supplementing, you know, with fresh vegetable matter. All right, and and so they've re rejected the traditional pet food model, and um, they've actually also rejected even you know cooking for the dogs, um, and because they're they're saying they need to eat just like the wolf. So 
those are the proponents and, and those are their arguments. And let's talk about the opponents. Really, for the most part, what you're talking about is, is veterinarians. I would say as a whole, the veterinary industry has rejected the raw food uh, diet. Um, and, and there's a couple of reasons, excuse me, <coughs> a couple of reasons. First off, um, the potential for uh, raw food pathogen food poisoning. Um, veterinarians can't ignore the fact that a certain percentage of these cases come in um, and you can attribute a particular illness directly to raw feeding. Does it happen every day? No. No, absolutely not. In fact, I could count on one hand uh, how many uh, cases where I can say I can verify and know that this particular case of you know severe uh, enterotoxicosis came from raw uh, the ingestion of, of raw food or raw meat. Um, and so uh, does that mean I can count on my hand, on one hand, the number of pet owners I've come across that feed raw? No, I, I couldn't count that on two hands. In fact, I've come across probably, I would say, well over 50, uh, you know, just, just kind of guessing offhand. I've come, I've come across quite a few. And so I got all of these people that I can actually look back and say, and actually still see regularly. I can say they feed their dogs raw meat and and we haven't had these problems. So I think that the the scare about the potential for intoxication with raw meat, you know, pathogens, is it real? Yes. It it's certainly a risk. However, is it a little overblown? I, I think it is. I think, to be fair, it's a little bit overblown. And I also think of myself. I mean, I eat sushi at least on a weekly basis. I love sushi. What am I consuming? I'm consuming raw fish. Um, and we, so when we think about, you know, food poisoning, you know, <laughs> tainted fish is one of the worst things we can actually conceive of eating. Uh, so, you know, I'm taking on that risk because realistically, first of all, I love the taste of it. I think it is healthy for you. And, um, realistically for the past decade I've been eating sushi and I haven't gotten sick let me knock on wood please on that one <laughs> um, and certainly I'm not equipped like a wolf but you know there I am eating sushi on a pretty regular basis um, so to actually sit back and say that if your dog eats raw meat it is going to get food poisoning no that's not the case and I think we need to be fair there and you know let let's let's be real about it I've been practicing for 10 years and on one hand um, now, here's the thing. Let's be fair to the veterinarians. The cases that I have seen, oh my goodness gracious, the the degree of illness that it caused in these few patients that, you know, got the, the, the tainted meat and the bad meat. Um, you know, I, I, can, I can honestly say two of them nearly died. And the most recent one I saw last week, actually, a dog that was being fed regularly a raw meat diet and came in with a bowel infection that actually ended up ascending up his biliary system into his gallbladder and his liver. And next thing you know, we've got a raging hepatitis and we have a white cell count off the chart and I had to hospitalize this dog and, and the dog was jaundiced and it was it was real bad and, and I can really look back and say, uh, you know, this this must this was a health otherwise healthy dog. Um it had you know no exposure to other you know, GI sick dogs, the only thing I could really put my thumb on that would cause such a raging infection was feeding of raw food. And so, 
you know, you see the degree of illness that it can cause, and that can sort of, you know, kind of skew your your outlook on something when you see um, something occur that's just so dangerous. But we have to really put things into perspective and be fair about all of this. Um, and we also have to understand people's motives. They're not out there to be kooky. They're not out there to um, try to just be different. Um, they're not talking about someone who's necessarily a tree hugger even. They're just looking for the best things to feed their dogs, and they have, um, you know, some concerns about the integrity of some of these pet food companies. So, you know, when, when I, when I kind of look at all this big picture, I think one of the things that we have to do is um, understand that grains are not the root of all evil, that good quality, you know, pet food is available, it's convenient, it's nutritionally balanced, you have the exact breakdown of nutrients that you need, and again, I'm saying good quality diets, not just every Tom, Dick, and Harry diet out there. You have to really do your research. But they're out there, and your dogs will do just fine on them, with a few exceptions if we run into things like food allergy or you know, pancreatic issues, inflammatory bowel disease, anything like that. Okay, we need to rethink things and, and uh, you know, look, look, look for other alternatives. Um, at the same token, uh, when we look at raw diets, I think if people are doing them right and they're doing their research and they're taking every precaution they can to make sure the meats don't get tainted, um, refrigerating them properly, making sure they're not fed or purchased before expiration dates, and again, being fed properly in the right proportions, um, I think we have to look at that as a viable way to go because you can't argue with success. Um, I, I don't think a dog fed raw is necessarily going to be any healthier than a dog fed a good quality you know, formulated pet food, but at the same time, um, I don't necessarily think they're going to be any worse off, and there's certainly no evidence to prove that they will be unless they come across the bad luck of having a food poisoning case, which we've, I think, time and experience have proven to me at least, is going to be a fairly rare occasion. But the other thing we have to remember is that pet food recalls do occur. It's not the status quo. They're actually not that common if you look at the big picture and the amount of pet food out there, recalls are actually quite, quite um, the minority occasion. Um, the vast majority of the time, you're buying stuff that is untainted, uncontaminated, and, and what we're looking at is realistically, recalls don't happen too often. That 2007 experience fouled a lot of people's minds, but at the same time, what that experience did to the pet food industry was made them more aware, number one, to be... Uh, to have a much better quality control. Number two, if they see a problem, to jump on it and advise the public much more quickly. And we've seen good things come out of that. It's unfortunate that so many animals had to get sick. But at the same time, good things have come out of that. We've we've all come out the other side of it much more knowledgeable and much more prepared. And certainly the pet food industry has you know um, become a lot more on alert about the fact that people have become very wary of their products. Um, so we're going to finish this discussion really shortly here, and I'm just going to give you some conclusions. And also, if you're interested in raw, give you a website that you can go to, uh, to to guide you. And I want to talk about the balance of nutrients. But before that, let's just get into our second and last uh, email question sent from Julie from Fort Worth, Texas. And this is her post. My dog has had horrible skin allergies all of her life. She's a six-year-old Cocker Spaniel. Nothing has worked long-term. We have done special food trials with exp expensive prescription foods, and every time my vet treats with antibiotics and prednisone, prednisone is a cornisone, by the way, just throwing that out there, um, 
Things clear up, but once the pills are done, we are right back where we started within weeks. My vet is now recommending allergy testing and shots. Given our lack of success with everything we tried, I am skeptical. I would like to know your thoughts on this approach and whether you think it is a good idea. Thanks so much. I love your show. Thank you, Julie. I'm so glad you listened all the way from Texas. Um, This is a very good question. So, you know, skin allergies is a really big problem in dogs. We see a lot of it. I see a ton of it here in Florida, but I would imagine Fort Worth, Texas is uh, pretty, a, a fairly, you know, significant allergy risk for dogs. And allergies really are inherited genetic sensitivities that can manifest in a number of ways, and in her dog's case, obviously skin. So one of the first areas I would look at is diet. And of course, I'm not just looking to eliminate grains. Remember, grains aren't the only issue. In fact, the majority of food allergy that manifests in the skin, most commonly, believe it or not, number one uh, is beef. Number two, chicken. On, and on mo- this is verifiable on most food panels that we run when we actually test the blood for uh, food sensitivities. Beef and chicken are always up there, okay? But at the same time, we know they can react to glutens that are present in corn and wheat, so we eliminate grains too. That is a case where you want to eliminate grains. Obviously, if we've gone prescription here, Julie, um, that's been done properly. And I recommend food trials going for a minimum of eight weeks, and if it's not working out, you have to look at other sources for the skin allergies. Now, the benefit of the allergy testing your, do- your vet is talking about is that what we get is a panel uh, telling us precisely what your dog is reacting to. What are the environmental sensitivities? Now, the purpose of getting those sensitivities is not so that we can try to change your dog's environment. I mean, a lot of the things come back pine, pollen, oak pollen, um, various species of grasses, and it's not really a matter of being able to change these things um, because even if you don't have a pine or oak tree in your property or you don't have a certain type of grass, well, probably your neighbors do or even you know down the road. Uh, somebody does. And so these things are going to be ubiquitous in nature. They're going to blow around, especially during the drier months. Uh, even grasses can you know, dry out, desiccate, and the good wind will sweep them up and get them into the air. So if, let's say your, your dog's reacting to bahia grass, but you don't have bahia grass. If your neighbor's got bahia grass, it's, guess what? It's going to end up on in your yard and your dog's going to be in contact with it. Um, so realistically, we're not unless you can move with your dog to Arizona, <laughs> um, you're not going to be able to change the environment. But what you can do is isolate the allergens in an injectable serum where you're giving a concentrated high dose of these allergens to your dog. And actually the veterinarian will teach you how to give regular injections. I believe they, in most cases they started every once every four days and as the dog responds, um, you back them off. So eventually we're trying to get to one injection a month, which you know most 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 owners are pretty happy with. Now, is it without problems? No, it's not. Um, first off, when um, you're not talking about immediate, an immediate result, uh, what we're doing is desensitizing the patient over time, and time is the key word there. It takes time. Sometimes we're seeing responses in the first month. Um, other times it can take two, three, four, five months before we're seeing a significant um, benefit to the shots. And the dermatologist, this is the frustrating part, the veterinary dermatologists recommend not giving up on the shots for a full year. <laughs> um, so, you know, something you have to stick with for at least a year to decide whether or not it's going to work, um, very frustrating. And um, we have about 20% of cases that don't respond to it. 80% success rate, but 20% failure rate. And when you think about the expense of the testing and the shots, and of course the 
uh, emotional considerations of, of being dedicated to a course of treatment that could last a year and ultimately not work can be very disconcerting for people. So what I say is go into it um, understanding that it is a very, very good option if your dog responds to it, if he's in that 80%. Um, side effects are going to be nominal because what we're, all we're doing is manipulating the immune system to become desensitized to these things. Um, so we, we like the fact that the side effects are minimal. Uh, and lastly, you know, once we, once we get there and achieve the goal, um, a monthly shot is really no big deal. And the needles are so tiny, the dogs really typically don't even really feel them much. So that's the good part. But understand, you know, if the, if the, if the downsides is 20% failure rate, the fact that it can take time to work as long as a year, um, you know, think about these things and see if it's right for you. Because I, I, I don't think any one course is right for um, every patient, not any one course is right for every client. Um, and, and we certainly have to understand that. I can offer this. One thing that would give you a higher probability of success would be to consider a, a daily medication called Atopica. Atopica is an allergy suppressant medication that has been very effective. Side effects have proven to be quite nominal, certainly much lower than the prednisone. Uh, and what we're talking about is minimally um, affecting your dog negatively while, while you know, having a, a, a course of treatment where your dog is going to respond probably fairly quickly within actually days of starting, max effect after one month of treatment, and you have a better guarantee of success. You know, you're talking about 90-something percent success rates in controlling allergies with Atopica. The downside is that it's very expensive. So Cocker Spaniel-sized dog, uh, you know, and based on the Florida retail markup, you know, I don't know what Texas would be, probably more. But the Florida retail markup on Atopica for that size dog would probably be about $100, $120 a month, and that can get quite costly. So think about all that, but um, I certainly, you know, I've seen a lot of cases of allergy shots do well. So uh, let's get back and just conclude our discussion on, on raw diet. One of the things I really wanted to, you know, get into was let's talk about the breakdown um, of, of nutrients. Now, one of, one of the big mistakes I think people made at least early on and still continue to make is they're feeding raw and they think, well, my dog's a wolf and my dog needs to eat nothing but protein. Well, that's not true. Let's think of the dog as an omnivore, all right, and maybe they're a little bit better equipped than we are to deal with raw food, and we'll, we'll just accept that. Um, at the same time, though, as far as nutrient breakdown, they need a nutrient breakdown that's actually quite similar to people. You want about 20% crude protein. You want about 20% crude fat. Um, I say as a, as a dog gets a little older, you know, we're approaching middle to senior age years, I'd go 25% protein, 15% fat, and then the rest of the percentages are made up of vegetable matter uh, carbohydrates. So the vegetable matter we're talking about, um, you, can, you can incorporate uh, rice, green vegetables, um, things of that nature to make up the remaining percentage. And it's not the easiest thing to do. And if we don't have a proper nutrient breakdown over time, it can take its toll on the dog's health. Um, you know, think, think what we would look like and how we would function if we just ate nothing but protein. Um, we, would, we would be kind of scrawny, scraggly, uh, unhealthy beings that overtax their liver and kidneys because the end stage of protein metabolism, you know, that stuff's got to be broken down into smaller chains. So we ingest, and this goes for dogs too, we ingest these large chain, you know, animal tissue proteins. They have to be broken down. They're then absorbed. They're then converted into a form that they can be incorporated into the tissues and utilized 
in the body. And then there's a waste product associated with them. Metabolic waste is always associated with protein ingestion. And that comes in the form of ammonia. Ammonia is converted by the liver into the less toxic product, urea. And urea then goes to the kidneys and gets urinated out. Hence the term urine for that waste product. Um, so when we're overloading protein and just nailing with protein, yes, we are stepping up the taxing on the liver and kidneys. And if you're not doing a proper balance and you're just slamming that dog with protein, um, you're doing it a disservice nutritionally and you're beating up its kidneys and liver. So that's something you need to think about. You know, if you want to go raw, do it right. All right. And, and, and do a proper nutrient uh, breakdown. Now, I told you there's a website I could send you to that can aid you in providing a proper balance. Um, it's called balanceit.com. Real simple. The word balance, the word it. No space, balanceit.com. Go there, and that's a good website to help guide you in your uh, raw diet travels and, and really help you to do it right. So that's my number one suggestion to people. Folks, just do it right. Do your best to keep the integrity of the nutrient breakdown. Understand that your dog shouldn't just be eating meat. Understand there is a small risk of raw food toxicity, and know that if you're seeing GI trouble, you need to see a vet immediately because things could get out of hand, okay? Um, my base uh, my base philosophy is, number one, that no one diet is perfect for every dog. Every dog has a unique dietary need, all right? And while we can draw some general conclusions, um, just because one dog does well on a well-balanced raw diet doesn't mean that the next dog will. So let's not be so married to a concept that we're never going to break from it. And here's a, here's a real good example. You know, don't don't get yourself in denial. I have this one client. She's got three dogs. Lovely lady, by the way. I have nothing bad to say about her except for the fact that she does live in a little bit of denial. Um, she's so convinced of the wonders of raw diet, and she does it right. I gotta say, she feeds well balanced, and she she's doing it right. And her dogs, to be fair, are quite healthy. But she feels that um, raw diet is such a magical approach that her dogs never get fleas. She doesn't even need flea prevention, so she never purchases it. Yet, every time I see her dogs, they have fleas. And I say, well, you know, you might want to rethink the use of flea preventive here because, look, your dogs have fleas today. Oh, I know why that is. They must have picked that up when I was walking them down, you know, so-and-so, and, and that's where they got that. But I'm sure that, you know, I'll comb them out and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll wash them up and everything will be fine. They just have that, you know, because of that particular situation. Well, then I'll see her a few months later. Um, your dogs have fleas again, and look, there's a bunch of bites and their skin's breaking out here. Oh, yeah, yeah, that must have been because uh, when I took them over here, and blah, 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 blah. You know, there, there, there's never, <laughs> she will never uh, grasp the fact that, you know what, her dogs have fleas all the time. Um, and, and while the raw diet has served her dogs well, it doesn't mean she doesn't need flea and tick prevention, especially here in the state of Florida, where there is no off-season. In fact, winter right now is the worst time of year for fleas and ticks. So, Let's not take it to a degree that's unrealistic. Let's be realistic. Let's be grounded in reality. Number two, if you're feeding raw and the dog is not doing well, stools aren't great, signs of indigestion, lots of gas, um, burping, a lot of dogs burp, uh, you know, you, you, the, the hair coat doesn't look great. Look, let's try another option. Okay, you tried it. You went there. Remember, the, the goal is to do the best you can for your dog. Let's try something different. Um, don't keep hammering away the raw because you want it to work so badly because you believe in it so much. Don't be so blinded like that. Um, I'm not going to sit here and lecture every person that feeds raw because I saw one one case in the last two years 
of ascending cholangiohepatitis, uh, and I and the dog nearly died. I, you know, it wouldn't be realistic for me to take that experience and you know tell everybody you cannot feed your dog raw. That would be wrong of me, and it's just as wrong of people feeding raw to you know live in that kind of denial. If it's not going well, try another option. Okay, not everyone diet is perfect for every dog. Um, of course, my advice will always be, look, we've got these good quality dog foods out there. The risk of, um, you know, pathogen, you know, raw food pathogen toxicity is way, way lower. And, um, you know, they're formulated for you. You don't even have to think about it. You don't have to worry about even going to a website. That's what I'm going to recommend. But at the same time, if people are passionate about, you know, being proactive in their dog's diet and they want to go there, you know what, I'm all for it as long as we're on the same page about doing it right. And the last point I want to make is use common sense. I saw this one lady, this was back in New York, okay, so this was this was in 2003 before I moved to Florida, and I'm practicing in, in Long Island, New York there, and this lady comes in and this dog is sick, just sick, 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 sick. Um, the dog looks horrible. So I asked her what she's been feeding, and she says, uh, oh, raw chicken wings. So I said, excuse me, you're feeding raw chicken wings. Uh are you feeding anything else? Nope, nope. Um, you know, I read this book, and I'm all about the raw feeding, and according to my reading, this is the right way to go. I said, you understand that, you know, chicken bones, <laughs> they don't they don't really dissolve in the dog's stomach like they do the wolf. Um, they're not broken down as well because the dog's jaw is not as strong as the jaw and the teeth of the wolf. Um, you're causing a major foreign body obstruction hazard here by feeding these wings. Well, you're wrong because if you really read what I read, you'd understand differently. I said, all right, well, let me just take an x-ray and see. Well, I take an x-ray, and what we see is an upper small intestine and stomach literally jammed with bones. <laughs> all right, and and so I showed her the x-ray. I said, well, there's your bones. Um, and despite what you may have read, realistically in practice, we do not recommend poultry bones. Let's hope we can get in there surgically and remove these things you know, in time before, there's actually a perforation because when these bones crack and splinter, they can actually perforate intestine, and that's when things are become really deadly. There's a perforation. A lot of those dogs die no matter what I do. So use common sense, folks. No bones, all right? Um, no matter what you read, um, one of the big things we tell you, you know, when, they, when you feed a chicken or a turkey at Thanksgiving, make sure the bones are inaccessible to the dogs because splintered poultry bones are one of the number one causes of obstruction and perforation. So use your common sense. Um, and, and, you know, keep your mind open as well as understanding that we should keep our mind open as well. And we're here to work with you. And so I'm not going to give anybody a hard time about raw diet. I'm going to help you to do it uh, the best that you can. And we're going to try to come up with a strategy together. And look, if your veterinarian's not willing to do that, if they just want to sit back on his haunches, on his high horse, and say, "I don't agree with this. I think it's the worst thing you can do," and I'm not going, to, I'm not going to sit here and and um, and justify this. Well, you know what? I think that vet's being a little unreasonable, and maybe it's time to find one that's that's you know going to be more willing to work with you rather than uh, draw a line in the sand and say you absolutely should not go there. Okay. Uh, but at the same t- token, from your end, don't be in denial that you, you know uh, your dog may not be as perfect on a raw diet as you'd like him to be. And um, you know, let's understand that not every diet suits every dog. And I can't belabor that point enough. I know I sound a little bit of like a broken record, but trial and error, folks.
So that's raw diet in a nutshell. That's where it came from. That's where the thinking is. Um, you know, the, again, the 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 beginning sort of tenets I think were a little bit flawed. Uh, in reality, though, I think it's a diet we can work with as long as it's done properly, as long as we know how to recognize uh, when there could be a problem, and uh, you know, keep open minds across the board and keep us working together, not in an adversarial relationship. Um, let's listen to one another, and uh, you know. Again, lastly, use common sense. I look forward to the comments on this one because I'm sure there'll be plenty. Um, you know, p- please keep those rolling. Uh, I just ask that you keep them respectful. You may not share my opinion. You may not share the opinions of others. This is a very polarizing topic. I've seen some explosive, insulting, nasty discussions on raw food diet, and uh, you know we don't need to go there. Just offer your point of view, whatever experience you might have. If you have any questions for me about it, feel free to. Uh, ask those as well. And then lastly, uh, when it's all said and done, if you're interested in raw diet, go to balanceit.com so you can be as educated about it as you can and you can feed uh, the exact right way. Ladies and gentlemen, have a good evening and thank you very much for listening this evening. Take care now. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the Internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.